is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Thank you so much for joining us. This week on June the 20th, the world commemorated World Refugee Day. This year, World Refugee Day focused on the power of inclusion and the solutions for refugees under the theme Hope Away From Home, a world where refugees are always included. And here on VOA, we mark the day by highlighting some of the stories and experiences of refugees, former refugees and activists working through advocacy organizations to protect the rights of refugees. So today on Upfront, I will bring you the first part of our special podcast commemorating World Refugee Day. I co-hosted the podcast with my colleague Naniti Talani of the French service here at The Voice of America. In the studio, we were joined by Oruak Shufto Genaro, a former refugee from South Sudan. He's the author of the memoir Shufto, in which he tells the story of his journey as a young refugee living in Khartoum, moving to Cairo in Egypt, and then finally resettling in the U.S. with his family. Nanit, it's a pleasure hosting this World Refugee Day special podcast with you. Hello, Jackson. Hello, Genero. Hello. Nice to be with you here. We know that every year, June 20th is dedicated to raising the awareness of the situation of refugees around the world. World Refugee Day was first celebrated in 2001. It was to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 2051 Convention relating to the status of refugees that defined who a refugee is and set out also the rights of individuals who are granted asylum and the responsibilities of nations who grant asylum. But what is the difference between these terms and why is the distinction so important? Here is a quick rundown. Refugee. A refugee is someone who is forced to flee their home country due to fear of persecution because of race, religion, nationality, membership in particular social group or political opinion, according to the United Nations 1951 Refugee Convention. UNHCR says 117.2 million people will be forcibly displaced or stateless in 2023. Asylum seeker. Asylum seekers are essentially refugees. But their claim to refugee status hasn't been evaluated and they have not yet received any legal recognition or status. There were around 5.6 million people around the world waiting for a decision on their asylum claims as of June 2023, UNHCR said. Internally displaced people. An internally displaced person or IDP is a person who fled their home but has not crossed an international border to find sanctuary. Even if they fled for reasons similar to those affecting refugees, armed conflict, generalized violence, human rights violations, IDPs legally remain under the protection of their own government, even though that government might be the cause of their flight. There are 61.2 million internally displaced people globally as of June 2023, UNHCR said. Migrant. Migrant is an umbrella term for a person who moves away from their place of usual residence for any variety of reasons, but not necessarily because of a direct threat of persecution or death. They may be moving temporarily or permanently, legally or illegally. Though the terms refugee, internally displaced people, asylum seekers and migrants may seem similar, those groups are protected in different ways. 
For example, the International Convention in 1951 outlined certain rights for people deemed refugees, whereas migrants have no such rights. Refugees are protected from being deported or returned to situations that might threaten their lives. They should be given access to social services and integrated into their new country's society. Migrants, on the other hand, are subject to a country's immigration laws and procedures and can be turned away or deported back to their homeland. Gennaro, thank you so much again for joining us. Watching that explainer, which of those terminologies or terms applied to you at any point in your journey? First and foremost, thank you so much for having me, Jackson, Nanette. Um, watching that explainer, the term refugee absolutely is what uh, applies to me and my family. Um, of course, the history of Sudan is very complex and it's unfortunately uh, covered with conflict. And uh, in the early 90s, there were a substantial amount of um, South Sudanese uh, in the northern part of the country that ultimately uh, had to leave the country through uh, Egypt, um, Libya, and some of the other neighboring countries to the north, uh, where the south, uh, the story of Lost Boys is what comes to mind when people think of Sudanese, or South Sudanese rather, and of course them having uh, crossed the borders into refugee status to the neighboring countries, which includes Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda. But refugee is the term that applied to me and my family and uh, hundreds of thousands of other South Sudanese as well. Okay, you know, Genero, next to you, there's a book, you wrote it. So does it reflect your experience as a refugee? It certainly does. Uh, the book starts off, of course, with me narrating what I remember most from Sudan as a child. Of course, having grown up there and Sudan being my home, Khartoum being my home, and um, the experience outside of Sudan, ultimately in Egypt, which is, of course, an Arabic-speaking country, so it wasn't far-fetched. But through the eyesight or through the perspective, rather, of a um, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, um, it was still a different uh, part of the world, different cultures, uh, a different society. And, of course, uh, the fact that my immediate family, friends, and people that I grew up with were no longer with me there, uh, it was certainly quite a shift for me. And your book uh, is titled Shufto, which is also your name. Let's see the book. Absolutely. Um, what does Shufto mean? Absolutely. So Shuftu is an Arabic term, which actually means seen it. So having seen something, having, you know, uh, a sight, having seen something. And, like uh, a witness. A uh, witness. Yes. Witness, yeah. absolutely. That's a perfect way to uh, place it. Um, uh, however, the name has multiple meanings for me personally. Uh, as I spoke with Jackson before, I told him that this name somehow made it uh, into my family line. And my mom, who's very creative, uh, thought it was a great idea to name a kid Shuftu in an Arabic-speaking country. So as you can imagine, growing up, that name wasn't uh, too <laughs> too friendly to me. Uh, I've gotten more than into a couple of fights uh, arguing about it. Of course, kids can be very creative, and um, you know I consider it to be cool. But uh, sitting here with you right now and speaking about my journey and my refugee um, experience, uh, it really does kind of come full circle where mm -hmm. I've seen so much in my 30-plus years of life. And so it was just kind of natural for me to, to you know, kind of incorporate that into the story. And you show, you share it with that in that book. The United Nations expects close to one million people to flee Sudan by October this year. Most of them to neighboring countries like the Central African Republic, to Chad, Egypt, Ethiopia, and South Sudan. But most of those nations have their own challenges, with people displaced by conflict who face food insecurity and instability. 
Henry Wilkins reports from Borota Chad on what Sudanese refugees will face in their host communities. 16-year-old Saeed Adam Mohammed says one morning in May he rode his bike down to this patch of ground on the outskirts of Barotta, a Chadian town about five kilometres from the Sudan border. He saw thousands of Sudanese refugees arriving. People ran away and came over here, but there is no food or drinking water, no decent food, no clothing. Some 425,000 refugees have now fled to neighbouring countries because of Sudan's civil war. But many of their host countries face their own conflicts and are struggling to feed their own people amid skyrocketing food prices and inflation. Experts and aid groups say Sudanese refugees face far from certain futures in host countries, including the Central African Republic, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea and Egypt. The mayor of Barota, Toko Bahat, says the community has done what it can to welcome the refugees. In Barata, the people are from a mix of places like Kanga and Porto. They know one another. They are like siblings since they come from the same families or tribes. So there is no problem in living together. Similarly, in South Sudan, Many of those fleeing Sudan are South Sudanese returnees. However, two-thirds of South Sudan's population already faces food insecurity and instability in rank, where many refugees have arrived. The difference with South Sudan compared to perhaps uh, Chad or Egypt uh, is that the majority of people who are coming coming across the border are returnees. Communities are quite welcoming and of course we hope that continues. The pressure that this is putting on markets, on humanitarian response is definitely going to uh, be difficult for humanitarian agencies and the government. Most Sudanese refugees, more than 170,000, have fled to Egypt in recent weeks. Egypt's currency has been devalued by 50% against the dollar in the last year, while food prices have risen by 60%. The Central African Republic, where around 14,000 refugees have arrived, has been embroiled in a civil war for more than 10 years, and security is dire. Ethiopia, where thousands of refugees have fled, is recovering from a civil war that ended in November. Eritrea has been accused of forcibly turning away refugees attempting to flee Sudan's fighting. On a visit to Egypt in late May, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees commended Egypt for helping Sudan's refugees, but said, we urgently need to mobilise more resources to help them to maintain this generosity. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Barotta, Chad. Gennaro, you watch this package with interviews, camps, and testimonies. Does this package um, triggers some memories from your days as a refugee? It certainly does. Um, seeing it is just, again, very difficult to see how 20 years later, over 20 plus years later, um, the population of Sudan and South Sudan are still facing, um, you know, the just absolute worst parts of conflict. Um, when I wrote the book, again, I narrated in my perspective and what I remember uh, as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so lots of it, of course, through the vision of a child is not the same when you reflect back and retroactively, retroactively begin thinking about it. 
but seeing that I can certainly remember certain you know similarities or certain aspects of what's happening currently that would just kind of apparent but not apparent in a way because of my probably you know child mind trying to protect me from what was happening from but, the trauma uh, of it from the trauma of now it. again as a child were you aware of the situation that you were going through whether you whether in you know the movement from Khartoum to Cairo to the US I was um so our transition or you know fleeing South Sudan at the time was very rapid uh, there was no kind of preparation or my parents didn't exactly lay out a time frame as when we were leaving or why we were leaving rather. It was just kind of uh, something that happened and of course, you know, um, culturally it's something we can probably all relate to when your parents say, hey, it's time to go. You don't argue. You do what needs to be done. So you didn't know anything? I did not know anything about it. Uh, probably within a week or two, um, our, my parents, uh, you know, uh, explained to us that we were leaving the country but not necessarily as to why we were leaving the country. And, uh, of course, you know, again, as a child and me, I'm the oldest of now seven children. Mm. Uh, at the time, you know, I saw my role as, you know, do what parents needed to do, what they needed you to do because they knew what's best for you. And so that was really the end of that conversation. Now, this is you leaving Cairo, going to, uh, coming to the U.S. You're only, what, 11 years old. Um, were there any type of ceremonies uh, performed by your parents, by your relatives, by your community? as they saw you off taking to embark on this new journey? So leaving uh, Egypt, leaving Cairo, Egypt, there was. I think I mentioned to you briefly that uh, at the time uh, there were lots of families that we were, we became acquainted with, you know. Uh, I had, you know, good friends by the time we were in Cairo and kind of readjusted to this new society and to the, this new life. So we've saw, we've seen uh, families leaving and often what happened was parents got together uh, sort of a you know goodbye sort of a gathering but not necessarily mm. and um, two weeks or so two months rather what, I what had, kind of gathering a happy gathering so it's really a mix I noticed when we were leaving prior to that I did not notice mm. what the gatherings were about it was kind of a ceremonial you know seeing people off but my own experience when we were leaving our parents uh, got together with some of the close friends and the neighbors and um, between the laughters and the jokes and kind of the advice that, um, you know, uh, the families and friends were given, mm. I noticed that there was a tone of sadness. There was, there was a, a sense tone. of melancholy. There was. Mm. And as a child, again, I didn't quite understand it, but it really, uh, looking back now, it really spoke to how much trauma or how much uh, parents mm. go about and uh, really try to protect them, their kids from seeing sadness, from seeing hurt, from seeing just the fact that you're now disconnecting once again. And having to leave and yeah. having to, you know, see what the world yeah, has to offer sad. next. So, so you, you said you were very, very young. So, what were you doing just to, so your younger one doesn't feel very sorry? Because you said you were the first one of seven children. So, if you were eleven, meaning the other one were very, very young. So what was your role as a big brother? Absolutely. So at the time, and this is speaking about the time we were in Egypt, mm -hmm. at the time I had two siblings, two younger siblings, and a third uh, sibling that was born while in Egypt. So we joke around the family now and call her the sole Egyptian in the household. But uh, my role was really kind of uh, the support uh, to the parents. Um, life was very difficult in Egypt. Um, you know, my parents had to work, you know, 
many hours. So often I was the one who was responsible for the children. That was the, the caretaker. Mm-hmm. That was the caretaker. I took them to school. I brought them home. I actually attended school in the evening at the age of 11 because throughout the day I was taking care of all the other kids. I even learned how to cook to make sure that, you know, they're able to eat something before mom and dad got back at um, 9, 10, 12 o'clock at midnight. So I was really kind of filling that role as uh, the caretaker, big brother, and any and everything that the parents needed us to. Were your parents constantly reminding you of your position in the family or your position in society as a family, uh, given that you are in a country that is not yours? Um, not necessarily or not explicitly. It was implied in a way. I, I, I firmly understood by that age that I had a role, and that role was to essentially um, fill whatever space that uh, my parents required me to do. So in my mind, I took it upon myself as, hey, this is your responsibility. And since, you know, parents are not home or they're working and taking care of everything that they need for us to get by, my role was to go to school and make sure that everything else is taken care of. So I understood that firmly. Now, Dinaro and Jackson, it's time to go to Uganda in East Africa because this country, uh, this nation hosts the most refugees in the world. The country hosts over 1.5 million refugees living in different parts of the country. Uganda is also known for having uh, some of the most refugee-friendly laws to ensure refugee rights and access to education, employment, and health care. We spoke to some of the young refugees in uh, the country, in Uganda, about the experiences, and this is what they said. My name is Ayoka Ben, and I'm from South Sudan. I've been staying in Uganda for the past decade and more, actually. My family decided to come here after the situation which started in South Sudan. So we sought refuge at the border, and from there we progressed deeper into the center city of Kampala. Some of the challenges, I think, would have to come with discrimination. Because some people have refused to accept this change, accept us into their community, and try to believe that not all of us are warmongers and not all of us want to harm them or steal their things. My name is Mahmoud Abdi Ahmed. I am from Somalia, especially in Mogadishu. Uh, I came here uh, end of the 2002. So the people in Kambala, they are very friendly and humble. They, was, they were very welcome on me when I came here. So I wanted to thank all the welcoming me. Now, alhamdulillah, I understand everyone living here. My name is Rahel, and I've been there in Uganda for seven months. It's hard to find some work for the youth, uh, especially for Ethiopians and Ethiopians. Uh, it's hard to find work. Um, it would be nice if uh, some opportunity would be given for the youth. By the names of Bill Gabriel Joshua, I am from South Sudan. So basically, the journey that I've been having here in Uganda, it started all the way from uh, 2013. I came here after the war. Uh, the journey has been tough. Nobody can say that the journey is always simple. It's always tough. So we came in here, we got knowledge, we tried to make a living out of it. And we thank God for that. We always, we are so grateful about that. My name is Bo Ter. I'm a South Sudanese by nationality. I've been in Uganda for quite long. So I've known, there's a lot I've known and I've learned from Uganda. So it's like, I'm used to it right now. It's like my country too. So 
being inter I interacted a lot with a lot of people in Uganda, like most special the Ugandan people, most special the teachers in primary. I learned a lot. They are good people. They interact. They are social, and they they actually they really good at helping each other. They teach us a lot in school, like help each other, be careful, be kind, and show love, more special to your fellow Africans. Now, General, I want to take you back, uh, what, over 20 years ago when you first landed in America after you made that trek, how many eight hours on the plane uh, coming to the U.S.? What were some of your earliest memories? Some, sometimes people say cultural shock. Absolutely. So it was more like 12 hours on the plane, which is the first experience. And um, again, as a child, you, you kind of see things in so many colors that adults probably don't. But um, I remember the very first thing that I noticed in that uh, how large that plane was. And I couldn't wrap it around my mind how such a thing can actually be in the air, let alone be in the air for that long. So I didn't sleep for 12 hours until we landed in uh, New York at JFK. Uh, some of the very first things I noticed was, again, uh, the diversity that I saw at JFK. I've never seen so many people, in so many place. different shades in mm -hmm. one place, moving at such a fast pace and not noticing how incredible this experience was. Mm -hmm. So that's one um, thing that I noticed when we first landed. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned, we uh, ended up in Buffalo. That's where we were ultimately relocated. Buffalo, Buffalo New York. Buffalo, New York. Yeah. And uh, the world of a difference between JFK, New York City, and, and Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. So those were kind of the very first things that you mean are the still big city versus small city feel. Absolutely, mm -hmm. small absolutely. town. The yeah. biggest city in New York versus yeah. well, technically Buffalo is the second largest city in New York, but in comparison, yeah. population yeah, it it's a small town. So those were just uh, very uh, apparent memories that I, until this day, still see very clearly. I know one of my earliest memories coming in here, the first things that I remember is the cold, because I came in January. Did you experience that? I did. Uh, unfortunately for me, I was a bit spoiled because uh, we arrived on uh, April 28, 2000. I remember the exact date. And the reason being the journey from the airport to our new home, uh, where we were living, was just kind of a sensory overload. Everything from the visual of the trees mm -hmm. and the greenery and uh, the roads, the cleanliness of the road. And then the absolutely most interesting uh, factor for me was the fact when we ultimately arrived at our new home, uh, and I mentioned to you before during our conversation, I looked to my left and I looked to my right and I did not see a child in sight. <laughs> which is just an incredible thing. Coming from a place where you see so many children all the time yeah, in absolutely. every space. Absolutely. Yeah. And Khartoum, of course, is a large city, so I was very used to that until it was time to go uh, indoors. Uh, but in Egypt, it was lively, constantly. So you saw people uh, always, and um, children were always playing on the streets mm -hmm. or something like that. And to uh, take a look in the middle of the afternoon, and I don't see anyone around except cars passing. That was a little <laughs> shock. That was that was just kind of uh, <laughs> very confusing. You had to intake that and say, "This is my new world now. No to. children here." <laughs> I was wondering where the people were. That was the that was the first thing in my mind. <laughs> okay, Gennaro, you know, 20 years ago, there were not as many refugees as they are in America. So, how was your? How did people perceive you as refugee in your new community? How was the first contact with your new place? So, absolutely, the very first um, kind of early memories of our um, kind of adjustment to this new 
community, this new society, was, um, you know, the very few Sudanese or even Africans that I was able to um, meet for the first time. Luckily for us, we were, you know, in a part of town where it's very diverse. So you have people from all walks of life. And Buffalo has a very diverse And you had a lot of Africans there. And then, yes, I got to meet uh, some new family. Some of my closest friends right now I met probably within the first couple of weeks of having uh, moved to Buffalo. But, uh, of course, it's a different society. The language barrier is something that's, uh, you know, it takes time to adjust to. I didn't speak English when we initially moved here. So... It took some time to kind of learn what people were saying. And uh, the, factor, the, the other factor was we came pretty much at the end of the school year. So we had to wait. My siblings and I had to wait until the following school year, which starts in September, to enroll into school. Mm-hmm. But the um, Catholic Charities, the organization that sponsored us at the time, uh, had programs for families. And they, they did a wonderful job really helping adjust, helping our families and all the families that they sponsor adjust to the new society. Mm-hmm. So that was very, very helpful. But, it, you know, it's something that uh, it takes time to kind of get used to. Yeah, but, you know, learning English is something, it's very hard. You know, it's ex- something I experienced when I came here like seven years ago. I couldn't speak English. So it was very, very hard. You so- would never tell that you never <laughs> spoke English. <laughs> very true. <laughs> so w- what I was doing is like ask my American friends to correct me. If I say something wrong, please let me know because I'm in the process of learning a new language. So how was the experience with you of learning the new language? So my personal experience, I thought, was very um, smooth in transition. And part of the reason being I'm just a curious, you know, character by nature. So I saw it as a challenge. It's kind of, uh, it was similar to when we were in Egypt. And I had to adjust and learn the dialect in Egypt because Arabic in Sudan in Egypt and like many other speaking um, uh, Arabic speaking countries is quite different. So to me, it sounded like a new language. So I had to kind of learn and work very hard at, you know, adopting and, you know, learning this new language. Mm -hmm. So it was a similar process for me with English. Um, The only difference was I needed to really kind of pick up quick because mm-hmm. no one else you had no time how about your parents i mean i know kids is sometimes it's easier for them to adapt to these new environments you your mom did you see your parents you know struggle i did i absolutely did and uh you know god bless their hearts because they worked very hard to also learn the language and adjust and uh, that's another aspect that i really wanted to point out in the book which is that as a child is one thing but for parents who are completely uprooted uh not by a choice of their own and having to readjust and relearn a language. I mean, I can't imagine trying to learn three different languages at this age now. Uh, but ultimately, having to adjust to the new culture, uh, having to learn the new language, make new friends, you know, uh, work, etc. Those are very Eat difficult new food. things to do. That All too. the food, absolutely, yes. The food, the food yeah. is a huge, a huge It's a shock. huge adjustment. Yeah, it took, yeah. Me, it took me a year and a half before I can eat pizza because <laughs> I didn't understand <laughs> why did it have so much bread cheese. with the cheese on it. <laughs> right. So, but uh, no, it certainly is a transition. And uh, for me, I took it as a challenge and I needed to learn the language, mm. not only for myself, uh, but for my family as well, because ultimately I was the one who had to explain what this bill was for uh, for my parents or what uh, 
uh, school report reflected or what, you know, uh, whatever was sent from school for the kids mm -hmm. and that the parents needed to sign off on. So these things uh, were necessary for me to come up to speed fairly quick. Orak Shufto Gennaro, uh, writer of the new book, Shufto, a memoir about your life story. Thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all of you for tuning in. And many thanks to our guest, Orak Shufto Gennaro, a former refugee from South Sudan. Many thanks to my co-host, Naniti Talani of the French to Africa Service. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are on Facebook. Just search for BOA Upfront. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bungani wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. This is James Brotty, host of Daybreak Africa, inviting you to join me every weekday morning at 3, 4, 5, and 6 hours UTC as we bring you the latest in African news, features, and sports. You can also be a part of Daybreak Africa through our listener mail segment by sending your comments and opinions to daybreakafrica at voanews.com. You can also call us and leave us a voicemail at 202-205-9942. That's 202-205-9942. And when you hear the Voice of America identification, press the number 25 to leave us your message. Start your day with Daybreak Africa every weekday morning at 3, 4, 5, and 6 hours UTC on the Voice of America. Sports fans have a lot to hear each day on VOA. Listen to the sunny side of sports for the latest from Africa, the United States, and around the world. Friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. Find the sunny side of sports on the radio, online, and as a podcast. This is the sunny side of sports. Right here on the Voice of America. I get it.